I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In the nearly three years that we've been doing this podcast, we've had many extraordinary authors on to talk about their works and their careers, but we've never had anyone from the other side of the desk, namely a publisher or an editor. Well, Louise Dennis is absolutely one of the legends and rock stars, if you will, of book publishing. She began her own publishing house at the age of 25 in Canada. She's the founding publisher of the Canadian arm of Knopf and Vintage, which has grown and become Penguin Random House Canada as it is today, where she's been executive publisher and executive vice president and has just recently stepped back under the wonderful term Publisher Emerita. It is my great pleasure to have Louise here. I consider her to be one of the great and most influential and important publishers and editors, certainly of my lifetime. And her list of authors, as you'll see, is literally a who's who of some of the greatest writers at work today. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Louise Dennis. Hello, John, and thank you for that. I think I can now go off into the wilderness and just say <laughs> that was such a beautiful, beautiful introduction. Don't go anywhere yet. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not intending to. So... You have had an extraordinarily close and long relationship with Salman Rushdie. And given what's happened, the brutal attack on him stabbing when he was on stage some months ago, but also going back to the fact that you met before the fatwa back in the, in the 80s, I was wondering if you could kind of take us back to the time when you met, which is a way also of opening a window to that period. It would have been, I think, the early 80s and how you met and, and what you saw. You were trying to build your list in Canada and your own tiny publishing house that you had begun, and what you saw in him as he went through what he went through 
which you, of course, know better than anyone, having edited Joseph Anton, his memoir about those years, and then what it is to see this happen now and what it makes you think as well about the role of the writer in society today and where it was when you guys met. Those are all such good questions, John, and they do all revolve around Salman Rushdie and his work and the place that he holds in the world today and has held in the world for many decades, but more consciously again today. I would say that we've actually known each other for about 40 years, I realized, because we met in 1982 when I had just started my own small publishing house, it was called Lester Norpen Dennis in those days. And um, the International Authors Festival in Toronto was on at the time. And it was a sort of early forerunner of the Sun Valley Writers Conference and aspired to be an international conference at the time in 1982. So Salman was invited. He had just published his novel Shame. And I myself went to hear him speak and was there at the conference because I was one of the founding directors of the conference, even in those early days. And I had read and passionately loved Midnight's Children, as so many people around the world had done, which put him on the map. And as you recall, I mean, the vibrancy, the color, what it told us of mm. India as a continent and as a literary place was phenomenal. So yeah. there was happened to be a march in Toronto that week. And as I recall, it was protesting cruise missile testing by the United States over Canada. <laughs> Um, the relationship between Canada and the States um, being very critical at that moment. And we went walking and I found myself unexpectedly beside him marching on, on the American consulate and found ourselves talking and talking. And very soon we rather shamelessly abandoned our, our march and went and got a drink so we could go on talking. Um, and because I had just started my own small publishing house of Lester Norpen Dennis, I, I brazenly said that if ever he felt he would like to have a publisher in Canada itself, since his books were only distributed into Canada at the time, that I would be so happy to have a chance to publish him. And just over a decade later, that is what happened. Hmm. And being Salman, who has a prodigious memory he remembered that and he and his agent, Andrew Wiley, who has been such a support to him throughout his life, came to me and asked if I would be interested in publishing. At that time, it was just after the fatwa. Yeah. The fatwa was in the late 80s, as you'll recall. Mm -hmm. it, was a, just a, it was a time that really overthrew the literary world and it threw, overthrew the world. I mean, we, we realized that somebody for the first time, a dying Ayatollah Khomeini had reached his finger across the world and pointed at an individual writer and said, this man must die. The Ayatollah Khomeini had never even read the book, nor had anyone in his cabinet at the time. But the Ayatollah happened to also be trying to resurrect his power in the country after very bad Iran-Iraq war, which left Iran in terrible shape. And so it was promotional and political initially in that very real politic way. And it turned into something that took the lives of many people. One of his publishers was shot but lived. Two of his translators were killed. And Salman, as we know, went into hiding for over a decade. And then 30 years on, this really brutal, cowardly mm. attack happened this last August in Chautauqua. So um, the fatwa 
as well as sort of shrinking the world in a horrible fashion, as you say, um, mm. pointing the finger across and suddenly a man uh, fearing for his life for something he wrote. But it also sent a shudder through the whole notion of, of writing what one wanted and speaking with a sense of freedom. And so during this period, of course, Salman becomes a spokesperson, an emblem of freedom of speech at its most real. And I think that's something that he has inhabited fearlessly all these decades. But I think it's something that's still somewhat confused in people's minds in a way, the difference mm -hmm. between freedom of speech versus what you say, shall we say, or your political views, but the, really talking about the very act to publish or to write. And I wonder your sense of Salman's journey in that thinking, if it's changed and, and how, and also yours uh, from your standpoint and watching him at such close range. I think that he has taught me and taught many of us in the publishing world and in the writing world how important freedom of expression is. And the great irony is that today we're in a situation where book banning has never been higher. It's escalated in the United States hugely and in Canada and around the world, but in the United States, as you know, especially with book bannings in schools, book bannings in libraries, yes. books that we never thought would be removed from the shelves, being removed from shelves because they might upset somebody else. And we realized back in the 1980s, 1990s, after the fatwa, that you're absolutely right. It brought people in the world of writing and bookselling and publishing together. Booksellers were firebombed at the time. So publishers and writers were all suddenly at risk in a way they hadn't been before and at risk in a way that writers in other countries have been for many, many years and still are today in Mexico, in Chile, in, you know, wherever you look in other cultures, writers and journalists are under threat for speaking, for trying to speak out and tell the truth of what they see as they see it. People may not always agree as to that truth, but we have learned that we have to give ourselves the opportunity to express that truth so we may all discuss it, learn from it, and understand the complexities of the world we live in. If we stop wanting to hear about those complexities, we stop living, as far as I'm concerned, and the world will spiral into very dire and difficult places. Yes. And we're too aware of that today and the dangers inherent in that. Salman's situation taught us all a great deal. And spending time with him over the years and becoming his editor and his publisher helped me, I think, to see how fundamentally vital that was to our lives and to even handling the complex problems ahead of us and challenges from climate change to democracy mm -hmm. and how we all have to turn our minds and be very smart about that. Salman thought he was writing a good book, yes. trying, he was hoping to write just a good book about the immigrant experience in England. It did not occur to him that he would then spend the rest of two decades almost, certainly a full decade in hiding and be under threat until this time. So he was as astonished at first as anyone could possibly be at the reaction. Didn't believe it? Didn't Disbelieving, yes. Disbelieving I mean, it? Yeah. Couldn't, how, how could you believe it? I mean, suddenly you've been targeted and 
the killing message spread so fast around the world in all cultures from Japan to to England and beyond so that that's why the Japanese Japanese translator was killed for example great translator and these things were so deeply distressing as you can imagine to Salman I mean it was awful to know that it was just impossible to believe that your friends could be targeted for something you had written mm-hmm took one back to the 1600s. It's the ultimate sign of the very power of the book. Well, this is this is the thing, <laughs> you are right. This is the thing that we all should take away from it. And that the power of what is being written and read may not always be palatable, but we do have to have the right to say it so that we may learn from each other and become empathetic to each other. Mm-hmm. I was president of Penn Canada for a while because of my fierce belief in freedom of expression. And for me, freedom of expression is woven out of whole cloth. If you pull one thread and say, this has to be banned, no one can talk about this, then you're going to see the entire tapestry unravel. It's very well said. It makes me wonder too about the role of the writer in public discourse in society today and and where it was as you were coming up, I think it would be hard for many younger people to imagine that a writer could make a difference to such a degree and be, be perceived as such a threat that uh, he or she would be, would be targeted. Murdered, yeah. It is Im- impossible to believe, as it was impossible for us as adults to believe that it could happen. And it's impossible to believe it again. And I think that I was in some ways... Um, fortunate that I had two such great lessons in my life about the correlation between the importance of writing and our freedoms and democracy. Um, The other was when I first started publishing in Canada, I'd come from England with my brilliant husband, Rick Young. He is a brilliant husband. He's a brilliant (laughs) man. He's a brilliant man. (laughs) And so I left England to come to Canada to be with him very soon. I wanted, I realized I wanted to start my own publishing house. I was an assistant, ed- I was an, not even an assistant editor. I was a sort of coffee girl at a publishing house in Canada. And I was seeing manuscripts and reading manuscripts that I thought deserved to be published and were not. And one such was a short, a novella really called The Bass Saxophone by a Czech emigre writer living in Toronto. And The Bass Saxophone was a beautiful novel about jazz under the Soviet occupation from 1968 onwards um, in Czechoslovakia. And Joseph had fled to Canada where he had set up a Samizdat underground press in the middle of Toronto in a dangerous situation for him and anyone involved in it because the Soviets had a long reach even then. Mm-hmm. And he, I realized and began to understand was making it possible for the great Czech writers to come into the English language without this one lone small publishing house Mm. in a little tiny two-room office in the middle of downtown Toronto. They would not have been read in English or in any other language. And those writers included people like Milan Kundera and Václav Havel and Klima and... Mm -hmm. Milan Kundra is probably one of the best known today still for the unbearable lightness of being and his other great novels. Václav Havel, of course, went on from being a playwright and a writer to becoming president of Czechoslovakia. But at the time, in the 80s, 
Václav Havel was in prison for his writing. Mm -hmm. Kundera would have been imprisoned if the Soviet authorities had known what was happening and that he was writing books. Books were banned. Literature was banned unless it reproduced the Soviet message. And so these writers were sending out their manuscripts, their Czech manuscripts, across the ocean to Toronto on microchip. And then he was publishing them here in Toronto. He had a typesetting machine. So it was hand typesetting. My God. And then he would smuggle them around the world. Were you in there with him with, with the typesetting? And the I w well, I, when I read this manuscript of the bass saxophone, which wasn't then translated into English, it was, tra it was only in French, but I read it as a, this young coffee girl and said, Let's, this has to be published. And so we found a translator into English, um, which I worked on through the French edition. And then we, uh, at night, Rick and I went into the offices of 68 publishers and hand-set that manuscript. Incredible. Literally through the night. And so very firsthand, I understood not only what was happening with Salman later in the 80s, but how important it was and how impossible it would be for us all as just ordinary readers to read anything without the efforts of the editors and publishers behind those books. It's like a lifeline. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I fell in love with publishing and the bass saxophone. Um, it was a history in itself because... I realized that publishing it in Canada was not enough in my tiny new publishing house that I was setting up to do this in our dining room at home. And so I borrowed money from friends to go down to the great New York and to the great Alfred A. Knopf. And I was terrified. We stayed with a Canadian friend because there were a few Canadian friends in New York then because the Canadians were starting a television series called Saturday Night Live. <laughs> all run by Canadians. So I stayed with Howard Shaw, the musical director. Oh, my God. Did you go to Saturday Night Live in its early incarnations? Yeah, we went into the offices. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. And at the same time, I was terribly shy, and I had to go knocking on the door of Alfred A. Knopf to say, I have this manuscript, and could you read it, please? And the editor with whom I'd made the appointment had then gone off fly fishing in Scotland. <laughs> so I'd borrowed all this money, and uh, he wasn't there, and his assistant was a woman called Barbara Bristol, Bobby Bristol, oh. who went on to become a great editor at Knopf, mm -hmm. but we were both very young. And she saw that I was in tears and said, let's go to the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Station. Wow. I was, of course, just thrilled I was to be in such a place in, in New York. And Knopf then read it through mm -hmm. Bobby Bristol's efforts and they published it. And the New Yorker called it, when it was released, the finest novel ever written about jazz. Mm -hmm. But I was learning at the same time the importance and, and the difficulties and challenges and importance I was speaking out and in answer to your question that it is equally vital today and it is equally vital to spread the word, which is why the Sun Valley Writers Conference is so important because it brings together writers and readers to learn from each other, to speak about these things, to share their work in ways that happen almost nowhere else amongst writing festivals. And I love I, the Sun Valley Writers Festival is a huge influence in the world today. I do think that as time goes on, one comes to feel the meaning of these things more, the sheer presence of books and of events such as the Writers' Conference in and of themselves is a value. I mean, that book was called in the end, the finest novel about jazz ever written. Of course, it is so much more 
because of the history of what it is, where it came from, and how it came That's to right. be published. And That's right. It's like a double meaning in, in right. everything that it is. So we started with Salman, and you have had remarkable authors that you've worked with over the years. I'm just going to name a few of them, but there are many more. But these are ones that obviously people would know very well. Salman Kazuo Ishiguro won the Nobel Prize in yes. 2018, wasn't it? And 17. 17. Yes, it was great fun. I selected sentences from his novels and we sewed them in crystal onto this dress. Uh, Ish said it's going to have to go into his archives at some point. <laughs> Fantastic. Margaret Atwood, Ian McEwen, Michael Ondaatje, Jan Martel, uh, the Life of Pi author. Some of them are Canadian and some not. What are the things that you learned working with these authors and what it is that that relationship requires and how it made you see literature differently? having seen it from the inside like that, such a high level? It's a very good question, John, and it speaks directly to what lies beyond the page. And an editor and even a publisher are, by and large, not visible. And I think that's absolutely right. But there are also two very different tasks. The editor's task is to work very closely with the writer to help them achieve what it is they want to achieve if they want that help or need that help. And a publisher's job is to make public the book, to find the widest possible readership for the book, for the writer, and to champion that book around the world. So a publisher has to be a great champion and learn how to be a great champion. And an editor, as you know, being a, a very good editor yourself, has to find a way to have that conversation with the writer prior to the publication. And that conversation can be immeasurably important to some writers, less so for others. And it's one's task to do whatever one can with smarts and understanding to try to match the ambition of the writer and to try to bring that ambition to its fullest understanding on the pages themselves, not just in terms of individual sentences, although that can be obviously a really important part of it through language, but also just to really understand the ambition of the writer and try to meet them in that place mm -hmm. and thereby become another ear for them, another eye for them, and to love the work as much as they do. I don't believe any editor can be a good editor unless you're passionate about the book you're working on. Yes. And as a publisher, I would take an editor off the work on the book if that passion wasn't clear to the editor or to the writer, mm -hmm. because there has to be that genuine belief in finding the best possible route to a great book. Mm -hmm. Whether it's poetry, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, it's the same in that sense. I'm looking down this, the list of these writers I'd mentioned, and in each case, they're writers of great ambition, and, and some of their best-known works are almost are too big for a book in the best sense. Life of Pi was a, a crazy book in many ways, and some of Salman's books are Atwood, of course, Oryx and Crake, and I mean, all sorts of different uh, worlds that she's created. And then Michael Ondaatje with The English Patient, which he, mm. he dedicated to you. Yes, I treasure that. 
And then I guess Ishiguro and like The Buried Giant, another incredibly strange. And marvelous book. A marvelous book. So were there times where you got lost in the forest along with the writer? I mean, it seems to me it's one of the challenges. Someone has to keep the headlamps on. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> That's well said, exactly. And at times that is very difficult because one can fall in love with it and fall in love with the forest. And then you're trying to remember your, mm-hmm. your path through the trees and trying to recognize right. every tree in the book as well. So it's a huge challenge to do that well. And there are some extraordinary editors in the world, and there are some who never do have the ability to do that. As you point out, it's a very hard task. But I think the sense of holding firm to what the writer wants, but keeping your distance as a reader, because at the end of the day, I think you would agree a good editor is simply a good reader. And that's our job, is to be the first and best possible reader. What a gift, though, for a writer. Yeah, You had a rather unusual childhood, and if one were to break down what makes the childhood of a spectacular editor, maybe this will be revealing, but (laughs) you grew up all over the world, really, and you did not grow up in England until you were in school, I think. Yes, until I was around 10 or 11. And it also seems that you were uh, surrounded in the best possible way by spies. So (laughs) uh, would you elaborate a little bit on that? Because... And some it's like writer, it's out of yeah. a novel, really, out of a Graham Greene novel, <laughs> your uncle. Graham Greene, yes, was my mother's older brother, but the novelist Graham Greene. But it's, it's some writers would, in fact, call themselves spies. Uh, that you, you have an eye on the world that you hope no one will see, but <laughs> right. is a very sharp and acute observing eye. So there is some correlation. Yes, my father was head of MI6 in the Middle East and my mother was during the war also in MI6 in Egypt. And wasn't she at Bletchley Park as well? She was a Bletchley Park girl, yes. Amazing. The girls, as they were called, the Bletchley girls, worked on encryption and decoding and just being secretaries as well and generally playing their role in the war effort. And she went to Egypt where my father had been posted and they remained there. And sometime after the war, I was born. And then he moved the offices of MI6 to Turkey. So we grew up in Istanbul. My goodness. I grew up in Istanbul as well. And then to Paris, where he was head of station, as they, as it's called, in Paris. And then he decided to step away from MI6, as my mother had already done so. And we moved back to England. But I lived in a very bookish world in the sense that books were just surrounding me all my childhood. And my mother would tell us stories every night. I remember still sitting in the bath as it got cold and cold and we didn't want to get out because we wanted to hear the end of her story. Mm. And my uncles and aunts were also part of the world of books. As you said, my uncle was the novelist Graham Greene. Two of my other uncles were writers and head of publishing houses. So it was always in the background of my life. See, when I left Oxford University, where I'd gone to study, I had various wild jobs, as one did in the early 70s. But the first real job I got was as a bookseller in the Charing Cross Road. Charing Cross Road. Which seemed kind of perfect. Yeah. Then I met my beloved Rick, and soon after that, we moved on to Canada, where I tried to get a job in a bookstore or a publishing house, whichever would have me. And it went from there. And then the base saxophone landed on my desk and a couple of other books. And I decided that to get them published, I had to start my own publishing house. So I did that when I was about 25. I think I've heard you 
tell a story about a favorite author you had when you were a girl in school, Rosemary Sutcliffe. Yes. And there's a quote that you take from, from Graham Greene, if I can find it. There is a moment in childhood. Yes. There is a moment in childhood when a door opens and lets the future in. And if you look back, probably all of us can find that moment in childhood when the world suddenly pivoted and you felt a connection you hadn't felt before. And knowing it or not, it would end up as a part of your life. And for me, that was when I was at school, aged about 10, 11, just gone to school in England. And the school brought a writer to talk to us. And I was a passionate devotee of this writer's novels. Her name was Rosemary Sutcliffe, and she wrote historical novels for children, brilliant historical novels for children. And she became very famous indeed all over the world. And I was so excited that she was coming. I mean, Graham Greene had nothing on her. I mean, this is, you know, this is my favorite kids writer. I'm sure he appreciated that. <laughs> and um, I was just astonished when she came in, in my ignorance as a 10-year-old, not understanding people very well, that these novels that I so adored, there were many of them, came from a woman who was this tiny little figure in a wheelchair who had suffered her entire life from a debilitating illness that left her paralyzed and half-grown, essentially. And I understood for the first time how extraordinarily challenging it must be to be a writer. I mean, her challenges were, were huge, obviously. But for all writers, that challenge is there. And I realized that she must be an extraordinary person. And what had made it possible, I asked myself, for her to write these books that I so loved. But that separation between the author and the book, that there was somebody behind that. And, it yes. was that, and that person was nothing at all like what you imagined. It wasn't so much that she wasn't what I had imagined. It was that she was giving us as readers so much when she herself had so much to contend with, but nevertheless was reaching beyond that to place in our hands these books. And I was just overcome by the courage that that must have taken and began to realize for the first time that any book at any time takes huge courage to write. And I just have remained all my life in awe of that courage. Well, writers, of course, as you know, are often in need of courage. And it's yeah. that kind of belief in us that we need. So you and Sonny really built Knopf Canada and Penguin Random House Canada as it grew from there. What is publishing's job and how has that changed? And now, today, where does publishing sit in our culture? It has changed a huge deal, but it hasn't changed in some other ways. And I'll try and explain. I think every reader, anyone listening to this who's a reader, knows that the voices that affect you are voices that can be from all over the world. But at the same time, there are voices from your own place in your own country that can open your eyes to what is happening right where you are as well. And that those voices are often enormously important, not just to you personally as a reader, but also to creating the culture of the country. So when I arrived in Canada in the 1980s, there were very few Canadian publishers there were a small band of young writers who had started their own imprints in order to get published. But most of Canada was still operating under the 
colonial distribution system where American books and British books were distributed in Canada as they were in Australia and other outposts of the empires Mm. without the writer getting a full royalty, without getting full promotion by people who understood the country on the ground and understood the media on the ground. So it was a question of recognizing that to hear Canadian voices, we needed to publish them in Canada and to hear international voices, Mm -hmm. writers from the US or the UK, someone like Ian McEwan or Kazuo Shiguru or Salman, people we've mentioned, um, Jeanette Winterson, Toni Morrison, so many of them. They needed a publisher in the country who could make sure their books were published around the country in the right way. And who understood the country and the readers. Who understood the country, understood the media, could reach the right media, could make it happen, who knew the booksellers well. The booksellers were enormously supportive of this idea because they wanted the books to sell. So it was a revolution in publishing in Australia and in Canada that we helped create, which was to bring about a Canadian publishing profession and industry in Canada, the same in Australia. And it took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort. I took the first Canadian publishing trade mission to the UK, for example, and to China to try to convince the British publishers that they should work with us and sell us the Canadian rights so we could publish those with full royalties. What sort of reception did you get? I got a very, very upset response, mm-hmm. um, which we knew would happen. I mean, we were, we were essentially rocking the boat in a major way because the British publishers believed that they, and the Americans, that they depended on, on the Canadian um, territory mm-hmm. to ensure profitable publishing of the books. And in some cases, it was very true. And it doesn't apply to every book. But for those literary writers who sought to be widely published and widely promoted, and also were happy to have full royalties, they responded to it very well. And there was a really exciting band of young publishers then, people like Morgan Entrican from Grove Atlantic yep. and Jamie Bing from Canagate and Liz Calder. Who are still very busy and going. It's still very busy and going as well. Mm-hmm. And Roberto Calasso in Italy. Yes. And um, and of course, at the head of it, Sonny Mater from Alfred A. Knopf. And we would band together in New York or London or Frankfurt book fairs or London book fairs. And we'd have a wildly good time. But it was all about sharing ideas and sharing books and talking about what mattered and what books should be published and what should be, what ideas and issues were important to publishing. And it was a very vital conversation. It's happening less now. That has changed because it's harder to travel. Mm -hmm. And so we're losing touch in ways that that opportunity provided. But even outside of the proximity, obviously, consolidation is a big factor in the last 20 years or so. Yes. Even as we speak today, there are huge changes at Penguin Random House at the top uh, that continue. And what are the benefits and drawbacks to this? And what does it say about what publishers ought to be doing and how to align a somewhat creaky business model that will probably ever be creaky and somewhat Mm -hmm. confusing to where sort of the private good and the public good meet. Right. Very well said. And that has always been a challenge in publishing going back several centuries. You know, how to make money in books for those who are putting the books out is very hard. Mm -hmm. They're a very costly thing to do. And how to make sure the writer can continue to write and have enough money to do that. It's a constant challenge. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something you said about Sonny Mater, because he approached me in 1992 when I had my own small publishing house, an independent publishing house in Canada, 
And he and I had spent time together. We'd shared books together. We'd had those book conversations together. And he came to me and he said, there's never going to be another Knopf anywhere in the world, but there will be in Canada if you start it. And even though it is part of a major publishing conglomerate, it wasn't as major then as now, but it was pretty major then. I would like you to launch it in Canada and you can operate as an independent imprint would operate, but with the support of the Random House Knopf imprints behind you. And I thought about it long and hard because I'd been an independent publisher, but I also knew that there was no one as brilliant as Sonny Mater in the publishing world. Agreed. And that if he felt that it was a, a really worthwhile thing to do in order to publish in the ways that I, I wanted to publish and similar to the ways that he published, then it was the right move. And so we launched Knopf in Canada in a very small way initially, although the writers who I'd published in the previous 10 years all moved with me. So mm-hmm. on the first list in 1992, there was Tony Morrison and Jan Martel and Michael Andachi and so forth. Well, that's a good way to make a splash. Yeah. <laughs> it was a Definitely. very good way to make a splash. Yeah. But Rick and I had an apartment in the middle of Toronto and our dining table for two years turned into Knopf Canada office. <laughs> and we didn't even have an office but it had the sense of being a place of conversation and independence, which we've maintained Mm -hmm. ever since. And it became a wildly fun and social endeavor at the same time. And I went to visit Sonny just a month before he died in November, 2019. And Rick and I had lunch with him and he put out of a drawer, a sheaf of yellow foolscap paper, all handwritten, which were his conversations with me and my conversations with him back and forth about the setting up of Knopf Canada in 1992. It was the origin notes. It was the origin notes, yeah. exactly. Oh, it's fantastic. And, and it emphasized exactly that. It emphasized how to be a publisher of independent intellectual measure, if you will, while using larger systems who operate well. And it's always going to be a challenge, the differences between the two. But with strong editors and publishers who operate almost independently, I think it's within their imprints it's possible to do. Alfred A. Knopf in New York is still essentially an independent imprint within the larger body of Penguin Random House Canada, as it's now called. Well, I would say thanks to you, thanks to Sunny, but what an incredible thing to to make and to oversee and to shepherd and to nurture because we do need those voices, you know, in the world now more than ever. More than ever. Freedom of expression has never been more important in the United States. It's more visible, but it's everywhere. And, but I want to add just one other thing, which is, it all sounds very serious, but the fact is... (laughs) It is also so much fun. It's so much fun being able to have great conversations with people. I mean, how lucky can we be in the publishing world dealing with the writers that you then bring to the Sun Valley Writers Conference? Well, it's the great reward, right, for all of us. It's the great reward. As is this conversation. Louise, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, John, and look forward to seeing you in Sun Valley. Uh, Absolutely. A few (laughs) short months. Yes, exactly. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to this conversation in its entirety, or to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. 
I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Until next time. <laughs>